Okay, well, good morning. Glad you all could join us this morning. We're back to talk about church history. Um, I need a pen. One second. Just in case I change my notes, I'll have them for next time in 10 years when we get back to the early church. Um, well, good morning. Welcome back to church history uh, for our Sunday school class. This is our fifth installment. Uh, some of you might not have remembered that because we haven't met in like three weeks to do this. We had a couple other things uh, come between our last meeting and this. So I wanted to just kind of go over a few things that we've talked about as an introduction. I'll spend a little bit of time after the introduction kind of going over some of the heresies that we talked about the previous time I taught because those are kind of foundational to what we're going to talk about um, today. Because uh, our title for today is The Church's Response to Heresy. We have the canon creed and bishops so the canon is the formulation of the, the scriptures what we have creed is the recognition of certain foundational doctrinal truths and bishops just kind of talks about the organization of the church as it goes forward in the preceding uh, generations so those are the three topics we're going to hit on today as way of introduction so the previous four uh, weeks we've talked about several things the first week we talked about so this era that we're studying is the history of the church from around 100 A.D. to 313 A.D. Um, 100 kind of marks the end of the apostolic era. So it's the time where um, the next generation of leaders are leading the church. 313 marks the, I guess what we would call this most ancient of time in the church history, in the history of the church. Uh, 313 symbolizes the date that the Edict of Milan occurred, which said that the um, Christianity as a religion was now legalized in the Roman Empire. So we're kind of looking at this 215, 220-year period um, between the time that the apostles left the stage and then church, the Christianity became legalized in the Roman Empire. Things we talked about were, first, the first week we talked about the amazing growth of the church both in the amount of people that came to faith and then also just the breadth geographically that the church spread um, almost all the way to Spain within the first century all the way to India as well so you're talking about how large a space that was we talked about that uh, the next week we talked about the persecuted church so we talked about two different types of persecution there was kind of a sporadic localized persecution based on who the local leaders were and the offenses that they had taken up uh, for Christianity. And then there was pockets of time throughout the Roman Empire um, that there was actual systematic global persecution of the church. So that was the second thing we talked about. Um, I understand that some of the recordings did not make it on the app as well. So if you need any, if you're curious in that of those and you weren't here, I can provide you my notes and I'll have to explain them to you probably. Um, the next week we talked about um, the early church fathers, we talked about the apologists, those who are providing a defense um, to, the, to, the, to the, the Christian faith. Um, we talked about the, not only the apologists but also the apostolic fathers, so that was the generation of people right after the apostles, so who the apostles passed down their teaching to. Um, so the apologists were the other group that we talked about, and they, talked, they defended Christianity both on a philosophical, practical and moral level. Um, so those are, the, those are the things that we've talked about so far in this series. So let's um, go to the, uh, God's word and let's read. We're gonna read uh, one of 
in 2 Timothy 1, a section of scripture here. And this is Paul's instructions to Timothy. And I want you to think about what Paul's telling Timothy here, because there's probably a pretty good chance that Timothy is passing down this same message to those that followed him. And um, the end is what we're going to get at here, because he kind of hints at what we should hold to as believers in his instruction to Timothy. So we're going to start 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. So follow along with me. We'll read this, and then we'll pray. Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into, into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Who abolished, who abolished death and brought life and immortality and light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So the two focus words I want to talk, things we're going to talk about today that kind of evolve here from this scripture is Timothy was instructed to follow the pattern of sound words. Um, so that's doctrine, good doctrine. And then guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So he's entrusted with the teachings of Paul, and that's the good deposit, and that is the the... The, the apostles' teaching is what, um, obviously, the church is built upon through God's word. Let's pray, and then we'll get into our lesson for the day. Heavenly Father, we um, praise you, Lord. Praise you that you um, have entrusted um, uh, your word to, to your church. Lord, we praise you that your word um, stands forever, and um, we give you praise for that. Lord, as we uh, come before um, this study of your church, Lord, there's um, great temptation, Lord, for us to um, look at facts and look at history, but Lord, I pray that we would see your hand at work. Lord, see how you have preserved your church, protected your church, purified your church. Um, so Lord, we um, ask that you would give us wisdom. Help us to see your glory more because of the uh, gift that you have um, given us in your preserved church. So Lord, I ask that you would bless this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so two weeks ago, um, the one point I haven't talked about as far as what we've talked about so far, we talked about some ancient heresies that had crept into the church. Um, I think we, if you were here, you could probably identify that some of those heresies were things actually that had uh, crept in to the church and have stayed in the church in, a various, in various ways, and they keep kind of coming up. Um, we talked about three major heresies, the first of which was Gnosticism. 
So Gnosticism, we briefly talked about being a general philosophy of the age. It wasn't relegated just to Christianity. Um, and the idea behind um, Gnosticism, it was a kind of a dualistic view of life, that the material world on this side was evil and bad, and the spiritual world was good. Um, and there was Gnostics that were bringing that philosophy into the church. Um, so they had an idea of dualism. Remember we talked about some of those really odd beliefs that there was two gods, there's one God who was spirit, and there's another God um, who created the world um, and all that was in it, and that was evil. So there's like this dualistic approach where there's these two competing gods. Um, very odd, for sure. But we also saw that some of these Gnostics believed in docetism, and that was the belief that Jesus wasn't really a man, that he was truly spirit, but he didn't come as a man, which was uh, frightening compared to what we understand for Christology. Um, they denied several crucial tenets of Christianity, including creation, the way we know it, the incarnation, that Jesus became a man, and then also resurrection, because if Jesus uh, or if man was to be resurrected into a physical body, that would not be good because they felt like the body and the physical was evil. Um, one of the works for Gnosticism was the Gospel of Thomas, kind of produced around the year 200. Um, so just understand that that's something that was written and others in later times wanted to say, hey, why didn't that book make it into the canon? Well, it was written later and it wasn't true. So that's why. The second thing we talked about was Marcionism. So Marcionism is really those that followed Marcion. And he lived from 100 to 165. And Marcion had a lot of uh, Gnostic leanings. He was influenced greatly by the Gnostics. And he ascribed to this view of um, dualism as well. Um, he believed anything in the Old Testament that was written um, was the fact, his belief about the Old Testament was that that was the physical God. So we had the physical and the spiritual again. He believes in that dualistic idea. And that the, that the Jewish God of the Old Testament was the, quote unquote, in his view, evil God. It's very, very odd. He denied also the physical birth of Jesus. One thing that Marcion did that um, was important to the formulation of the church was that he created his own canon of scripture that we talked about. So he took the books that the church had already begun to recognize as authoritative, and he landed on the only books that he thought should be included into a canon were uh, Paul's epistles um, and then the Gospel of Luke, except for in the Gospel of Luke, he took out the parts about Jesus being born because he believed that Jesus just came on the scene. He just appeared. Um, so he kind of had his own um, Bible in his, his, uh, based on his views. Anything in Paul's epistles or the Gospel of Luke that alluded to the Jewish faith or anything in the Old Testament, he removed that as well. So he kind of spliced the scriptures accordingly to have what he wanted them to say. But it's important that he said these are the books that the Marcion followers would um, believe. And that's important because at some point somebody's here making a canon saying these are the authoritative books and the church has to respond. So you can see that that's why the first topic we have is the canon of scripture because the church is saying, no, no, uh, Marcion, you're wrong. There's more to, to the Bible, especially the New Testament, than these books that you're saying and your theology is wrong. Okay, so that was the second um, of the heresies we talked about. The third was Montanism and this was the followers of Montanus who believed that the Holy Spirit was providing new revelation to get this Montanus and his followers. 
Um, so the idea that scripture wasn't sufficient for revelation. Um, so you had, you had Marcion over here limiting these authoritative scriptures, and then you had Montanus adding to scripture, okay? Um, he believed that scripture was not the only authority, but the revelations that he received were on par with it. Um, he believed that the, the time after the apostles was the age of the spirit, and they emphasized end times. Remember, we also talked about them um, kind of, there was different branches of Montanism. One would um, espouse to very extreme asceticism, uh, where they would um, do a lot with, without a lot of things. They would put off um, various things and live very strict, holy, regimented lives. But then you also had some that, were, some that were more, so you have ascetics on one end, and then you have libertines on the other end that would just live free will, um, let, let, let everything that they would do without understanding the cause of it. They'd be okay with just sinning. So it was odd that the Montanists would be on both ends of the spectrum. But as I said last time, this time, despite these heresies being crept into the church, it was a time of, as one historian says, of productive confusion, because it was a time for the church to clarify what it believed. The church at this time was refining what it believed and where its authority rested at this time. Um, so we're going to look at the three ways that the church used to combat these heresies. Um, I have one quote here from one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus who said the authority of the church rests on three things in his view. Um, I don't completely agree with this 100%, but this is what he said at that time. It rests on the canon of the Bible, the books that are to be accepted as the authentic, authoritative books of the Christian church. Great. Secondly, it rests on the apostolic creed as the normative rule of faith. And we're going to talk about the Apostles' Creed and the development of early creeds about statements of faith. I think that's important so we understand that good doctrine is important. And thirdly, it rests on the episcopate, the bishops as the guardian and expositors of truth and of scripture. This one kind of gets a little bit offhand if you start looking at the hierarchy of the bishops, and we'll talk about that as our third point today. But that gives us a good outline of what we're going to talk about. So we're going to talk about the, the formulation of the New Testament canon, um, the um, beginning of a creedal view of um, uh, teaching and understanding good doctrine, and then we're going to talk about the beginnings of church government and the appointment of bishops um, over the church. So let's talk about the formation of the canon. All right, so I kind of cheated because I said we were only going to talk about the years 100 to 313, right? So the first couple dates I'm going to give you fall outside of that, so I'm sorry, but, but I'll work my way back into that so you can understand that. So a couple things just, just for your dates so you understand where we are. Um, the formulation of the canon, it's not like John wrote Revelation, okay? So John writes Revelation, um, and then all of a sudden they snap their fingers, and everyone has a Bible in their hand. That's not what happened, right? So what needed to happen was letters were being written by the apostles. Certain letters, the apostles wrote letters that we don't have in the scriptures. They weren't inspired. That's, 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 that's how they communicated at that time. Um, there's other writings that are going on at the same time. So the question was, you have this um, wealth of information and letters, and what is scripture, right? What is uh, going to be included in the canon? So it's not like 100 AD, we were delivered a book that looks like this. The one thing they had at 100 AD for sure were some of these inspired writings, and they had the Old Testament, right? So for the early church, the Old Testament was their scriptures, okay? And then they had some of these writings as well. 
But there was also, as um, guys like Marcion came on the stage, um, it's definitely important for the church to ratify what items, which letters were authoritative and inspired. So, but that wasn't done officially by the church until 397. So, like I said, that's outside of my dates, but forgive me. Um, 397 at the Council of Carthage, the church accepted the New Testament canon as we know it today. Um, another important date around this time, one of the later church fathers, Athanasius, compiled a list of what he believed based on his investigation and what had been passed down from previous generations, had finalized a list in 367, still outside my 313 date. Um, so why are we talking about this now? Because it's important. So at the Council of Carthage in 397, the church accepted the New Testament canon as we know it. Um, the authoritative books, though, prior to that had already been established. It was just the churches at this point was making sure everybody was on the same page. Um, and this was the council that was formally recognized um, the New Testament canon. So the evolution or the, pro the progression of the, us getting the New Testament took some time. Um, like I said, Christianity always had um, the Old Testament. Obviously, that's so much of the New Testament, what Paul and the other apostles are writing about, references the Old Testament. Christ referenced the Old Testament over and over in the, uh, in the Gospels. Um, and the, um, Mar just, just to remind you, this Old Testament, Marcion, one of the main heretics of the day, rejects the Old Testament. Um, but the New Testament itself and its progress of being put together as one solid book did not proceed at the same pace in every part of the church. So remember we talked about as kind of each church as it's established in the first century kind of kind of wants to trace its roots back to one apostle. So like let's say Rome says, hey, we are, we are of Paul. Um, Antioch might say we're of Peter. And the one in India might say, hey, Thomas came all the way out here. Remember we talked about there were some allegiances um, to each of the apostles by churches. And that had an impact on what they, how they viewed um, these letters and inspired writings. Um, so just understand that. So that's why not every church was on the same page at the exact same time about what should be in the New Testament canon. So everybody understand when I say canon what that means? Canon is like a measuring stick. So this is the standard or the rule uh, for what is in the Bible. That's why we use the term canon. Um, so there's still a process for the church to recognize which books um, needed to be in this canon. But more importantly, it was important to identify which books needed to be rejected. Okay, so there's, um, there's an idea of promoting some books and rejecting others. As Protestants, we believe the church did that. It recognized the authority that already existed in the books themselves. Okay, so Catholic tradition and the Catholic faith would say something different to that. They would say that here are the books and the church is imposing its authority on the books, saying the church almost is one guiding um, that these books are authoritative. Does that make sense? Whereas we would say, as Protestants, that if the church didn't say these are authoritative, they are authoritative, because they're authoritative because they're the scriptures. The scriptures are the scriptures because they're the scriptures. That's kind of circular, I think, but we'll go with that. Um, and that's what B.B. Warfield would say. He says, we say the scripture is scripture because it's scriptured. The scripture is the road. The church is like the sign, okay, that points you to go down the road. 
Um, so the scriptures are preeminent. Um, so just a different view where the Catholics are saying the reason the scriptures have authority is because the church has given them that. We believe the scriptures inherently have authority. Have I said that ten times already? But that's my point here. Um, next, um, so it took some time for the canon to be formalized. And one of the, the primary um, aspect of recognizing these books is to ensure that these books had apostolic authority. Um, Paul says that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This is in Ephesians 2.20, with Christ as the cornerstone. Um, it was to the apostles that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, and he would bring to them all the things that Jesus had taught them. Um, and it was the it was recognized by the apostolic father Papias from 770 to 160 who said that apostolic authority was the guiding rule onto whether a book or a teaching could be accepted. So we had to, the church has to say, I've got these 30 to 40 books we're looking at or letters. What, is, what has apostolic authority? And that was one of the things that you had to look at. It was, was it written or influenced by an apostle? Um, upon the apostles' death, their inspired written word was all the more important. Um, a couple things that we have historically. I did teach some of this before. It was like six years ago, it seems like. Maybe it was four years ago. There's a fragment. So just archaeologically, this is kind of cool to think about. It's called the Muratorian Fragment, which dates back to 170 A.D. So we're talking within the century of John's death. Um, and this fragment, so it's a piece of parchment or something that lists out certain things and it identifies 22 authoritative books in the New Testament by the by 170 so that means it's written out that these 22 books are authoritative and part of the New Testament and the Muratorian fragment also describes that there are four types of books that are kind of before the church at the time they're the ones that have authority these 22 there's also some disputed works this early on in the church, the church says, hey, there's some literature out here that is um, not apostolic. It's not um, inspired by God. But this fragment contains information about this. Um, there's also edifying works, some good books, good, good letters that maybe you know, call us to um, a holy life or better Christian living, but they're not authoritative. It's like half most of the books in our library, right? Um, and then there was also completely rejected heretical books that was already known to be completely heretical. And some of these, um, some people try to argue, should be in the canon today or use it to discredit the canon that we have today. So what is the criteria for acceptance of a book into the New Testament canon? I've got five points for you. I'm sure I did not leave you enough room, but you have extra paper. As I've alluded to already, the first is the, um, so the criteria for acceptance, a broad view would be there's both external evidence and internal evidence, okay? All right, so five things, and you can decide if they're external or internal evidence. The first is, as we've talked about, apostolic origin. A book had to be written by or um, written by either an apostle or one of their close associates where they were the primary resource. Polycarp, who was a first-generation leader after the apostles wrote to the Philippian church, understanding that the letter that 
Paul had written to the Philippians was inspired, because this is what he says. Certainly neither I nor anyone like me can follow the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul, who taught you accurately and firmly the word of truth. He said, this letter that he's writing is my advice to you, and it's not on the same level as what Paul wrote. Well, it might be, he's pretty humble, right? I'm not the Apostle Paul, I'm Polycarp. Um, But he's also saying is, that word has authority for you. It's inspired by God. Um, Whereas he's saying, what I'm writing you is just for your instruction. Um, So that's one, apostolic origin. Two, orthodox doctrine. Um, if a work was contrary to these works that were already believed to have authority, it was rejected. So orthodox doctrine. Thirdly, and this one kind of can go, um, it's, it's important, but it is not the only rule. If we only use this as a rule, we'd all be in trouble. And that's broad, broad acceptance by the universal or Catholic church, little c. Broad acceptance by the universal church. So you understand if you use the term Catholic, it just means global or universal. Um, When you use it as an adjective, when you capitalize it, it makes it a proper noun, and that is the Roman Catholic Church. So hear what I said, little c. So broad acceptance by the church. Um, Not based on counsel, but rather consensus of the churches. This helped to weed out heretical sects attempting to include their obscure, non-authoritative authoritative works in the canon. Also important, the fourth point would be the time it was written. Um, works written in the middle of the second century were not written by the apostles in their immediate context, most likely. So you have an end of when these works would have been written. And also, fifthly, um, they were used in public worship. So there's kind of this view that the inspired word was used and preached from and taught at that time. So those are your five points. I hope you got them all. Um, So that's kind of how we got the New Testament. So as 397 comes on the stage and at the Council of, did I already forget it? At the Council of Carthage, um, the, the, the church already has a great idea of what the authoritative books are in the New Testament. Um, the Roman Catholic Church would say, hey, we finally, we gave those books that authority in 397. As Protestant Bible-believing uh, believers, those books already had authority before that. And really, what, you were, what they were doing throughout that process was weeding out these books that other people were trying to bring into to play. Um, so there's a pretty good understanding of what the right books in the New Testament canon were in the first century after the... Um, after the apostles. That's, that, that, I think that's what we need to understand. It's not like 400 years later they got together and said these are the books. No, there was a long process to identify these books and to understand which ones were authoritative um, and they used these guidelines to do that. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's, it was a kind of a collective um, view of it, but there wasn't one council at any point saying that. It was kind of like, these are the guidelines we're going to use, um, but yeah, it wasn't just one person, or it was kind of kind of accepted, I guess, that these were the normal things that you'd look at for that. But that that's why some regions might say, we accept this book, but not that book, 
And there was some understanding that there was some fluidity to that, which needed to be corrected. Um, but yeah, there wasn't just one group of people talking about it, not a council or anything like that. Okay. Good question. Okay, so secondly, the church then also needs to be instructed doctrinally as well. So we see the beginning of um, kind of a creedal view or the utilization of creeds in the early church. So we talk about a creed, that's a short statement of confession to identify right belief about the Christian faith. These creeds identified Christ and his true believers. These were symbols or passwords for the faithful as they developed over time. So we have some examples of creeds in the New Testament. Peter saying very shortly about Jesus, you are the Christ. And then Paul in Romans, just, these are just a couple of examples saying, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's an idea of a confession, if you confess with your mouth and then you declare something, Jesus is Lord. That's a, that's a, that is an example of a creed. So you have an idea that Paul and the gospel writers are using creeds and confessions to summarize doctrinal statements. You think about things like, um, like the beginning of Ephesians, it kind of identifies um, where we are in Christ. Colossians, that big chunk that talks about Jesus and who he is, that identifies, uh, it's, it's kind of creedal in its view. Um, so there's a couple things that we can talk about around the utilization of creeds. The first is the rule of faith. And this is kind of ambiguous, okay? But it's kind of, this rule of faith is passed down from um, church leaders to church leaders. And it's a summary of Christianity that occurs in various verbal forms in the writings of numerous early church fathers. It's not a formal creed. So the rule of faith is not a formal creed like, you know, it's kind of like a confession, like the Westminster Confession or the Heidelberg um, Catechism. But the rule of faith, it's not written down that um, extravagantly. But it's a formal creed. And it's not... What I have is a couple examples for you from some of the early church fathers just kind of talking about what you ascribe to as a Christian. So I'm going to read those for you. Um, first from Ignatius. He says, okay, so this is kind of the standard, like, okay, this is right belief. You need to understand these things about Christ specifically. This is what Ignatius writes. Bear with me. It's a little bit long. Stop your ears. Therefore, when anyone speaks to you at variance with Jesus Christ, so they're going to talk to you about Jesus, and if they vary from this, think about it. This is what he says about Jesus, who was descended from David and was also of Mary, who was truly born and did eat and drink. Think about Gnosticism as we read through some of these things. He was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He was truly crucified and died in the sight of beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He was also truly raised from the dead, his father quickening him, even as after the same manner his father will so raise up us who believe in him by Christ Jesus, apart from whom we do not possess the true life. All right, so that's a pretty good summary of what Jesus did, right? So a couple things here. He says, um, Jesus, who was descended from David, so he has a, a lineage. He was born of Mary. He did eat and drink. Spirits don't eat and drink. So he's a physical man. It's a rejection of Gnosticism. Um, he was persecuted under Pontius Pilate. 
real historically happened. That's why they reference Pontius Pilate there. Um, he was truly cru crucified. He bore physical pain and torment. So this, you see how if Gnosticism is making a big inroads into the church and it's saying that, hey, spirit's, spirit's good, physical is bad, and Jesus himself, if we believe in Jesus, he's not really physical. These are the things that as Christians we understand about Jesus and they write these statements of faith or these rules or standards to say this is what you should believe. So each of the church fathers, early church fathers, had instructions um, to various churches about what the rule of faith was, and it kind of hit on these kind of things. Understanding that Jesus was fully man and fully God was very important because that was being attacked at that time. Um, so that's, that's what um, Ignatius said. Uh, Tertullian, it's, this is really rich language. I wish I'd, I should have printed it out for you guys, but I didn't want to do that much typing. Um, but I would like for you to listen to it anyway, because it's really rich language, and I think you can come away worshiping Jesus because of it. He says, now with regard to this rule of faith, it's the rule of faith, these are the things we hold to, that we may from this point acknowledge what is which we defend. It is, you must know, that which prescribes the belief that there is only one God, and he is none other than the creator of the world, who produced all things out of nothing through his own word. First of all, sent forth that this word is called his son, and under the name of God was seen in diverse manners by the patriarchs, heard at all times in the prophets, at last brought down by the Spirit and the power of the Father into the Virgin Mary, was made flesh in her womb, and being born of her, went forth as Jesus Christ. Thenceforth he preached the new law and the new promise of the kingdom of heaven, worked miracles, having been crucified. He rose again in the third day, then having ascended into the heavens, he sat at the right hand of the Father, sent, in, sent instead of himself the power of the Holy Ghost to lead such a belief as believe will come with glory to take the saints to the enjoyment of everlasting life and of the heavenly promises and to condemn the wicked to everlasting fire after the resurrection of both these classes shall have happened together with the restoration of their flesh. This rule, as it will be proved, was taught by Christ and raises amongst its ourselves no other questions than those which heresies introduce and which makes men heretics. So really long, a couple things. Creation. One God who created everything, rejection of Gnosticism, who said there was a physical and a, and a spiritual God, talks about Jesus um, um, existing forever and talks about Jesus' roots in the Old Testament, how it's talked about. So no rejection of the Old Testament here. Uh, talks about Jesus, um, his physical life as well. And then it talks not only at the end that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, but he's returning again um, to, for resurrection for those that would believe and also to judge those that do not believe um, because the Gnostics would also disagree that they would say that the God that's over the spiritual is all about a God of love and not a God of judgment. Okay? You see some of these themes creeping into the church again today or have been there forever maybe? Those are really long, but they're succinct passages about what Christianity believes. So these guys are writing to you. If another person comes to you and ascribes a different theory or theology about who Jesus is or about what Christianity is about and doesn't fit this standard or this rule of faith, reject them as a heretic. Okay? Make sense? All right. It's very well written. Much better than I could have done. 
Um, these were also used as a standard for baptism. They would write creeds like this, and they would ask questions around those topics, like, do you believe in the Almighty Father? And then, yes, baptized. Do you believe in Jesus? And list out everything about Jesus that was in that standard or uh, creed. Baptize them. They, they would, like, dunk them three times. So, interesting. I, I, I hesitate to do this because I haven't developed this point enough, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. So, hopefully I don't offend anyone. I don't think I will. But people were acknowledging, understanding, as they were being baptized in the early church, understanding that doctrine, and almost to some um, perspective, providing testimony to that doctrine. Um, I think that's an argument uh, for adult baptism in the early church, and not infant baptism. Okay? That's all I wanted to say. Just wanted to throw that out there. Not in my notes. The next point, though, so we talked about the rule of faith. That kind of was this idea of this summary doctrinal statement about who Jesus was and what the Christian faith was. But each of the, the fathers would have written it in a certain way. It was kind of inconsistent in its language, but consistent in content. Okay? But along around 150, um, the church kind of ascribes to a view, a, a one standard, and that's called the Apostles' Creed. Many of you guys are familiar with this. I have it on your uh, um, study sheet there for your review. But let's just read it really quickly. So the Apostles' Creed is a summary of right teaching. There's one part of this I'm not going to get into today, but we can talk about it later. Um, is, and this is what it says. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, bo born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, little c, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So this is kind of a summary, a briefer sum summary statement of those things I'd already talked about from Ignatius and Tertullian. So the Catholic Church would state in their traditions that this was actually written by the apostles. So the apostles came together in a circle, and they, um, before they decided to go spread the gospel message throughout the known world, they were in a circle, and they both kind of wrote a little aspect of this and said it, and they wrote it down, and um, that's not true, unfortunately. That's not what happened. Um, we can trace it back to around 150, and one thing we can see this is written to contradict these heresies, and we'll talk about that. Um, but this was used as a means of recognizing true belief. So you would understand that if someone ascribed to this, that they were trustworthy. Um, also, this was used in baptism. But several aspects of this point to this being a direct assault against Marcion and the Gnostics. First of all, it's Trinitarian in its view. You see the Father, you see the Son, and you see the Holy Spirit described in this, or the Holy Ghost is what's listed there. Um, for God, the Father, Almighty, meant all ruling. So you have this one God that rules over all things, not just the rule, the spiritual world. There's nothing outside of God's rule. Not just, he was not just the God over the spirit world. 
and he had not forsaken the physical world. So he is all ruling. That's what almighty means. Um, obviously, the creed spends a lot of time in identifying truths about Jesus. Um, Orthodox Christology is seen here, and it rejects the Gnostic view of Jesus. Jesus is named the Son of God, or in some earlier translations, he was called Son of the Same, or His Name. He rules, He also rules over all. Highlights the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, and it's not that He was, it was a virgin birth that was key. The key was that He was born, um, that physical manifestation of Him in human form. It rejects docetism, which believed that Jesus was not truly a man. And he says that it's because he was born. And it also says he was crucified, died, and rose again in a physical body. And then also that Jesus would return to judge, which Marcion rejected, saying that the true God was only a God of love, but not of judgment. So there's kind of a systematic view as why the Apostles' Creed was written this way. Um, the last paragraph touches on several topics. Um, at this time, there was less controversy over the Holy Spirit. Montanus really wasn't on the... Um, seen as of yet, so the main aspect was on Christology and getting that right. Um, the affirmation of the church um, was important because Marcion had started his own schools of, of philosophy, and um, it was important to identify the authority of the local church. And then the idea of resurrection of the flesh, um, they rejected the idea that, um, that the flesh was completely evil and apart um, from the spirit. Um, there is the um, statement in the middle, he descended into hell. I will let you study that on your own. I didn't have enough time to delve into that study. I think Keith might have mentioned that when he talked about the doctrine of Christ a few weeks back, so you can uh, identify that. I will tell you that he descended into hell, which is if you go to a, um, maybe more of a, um, what would we call it, mainline church, they still recite um, the Apostles' Creed, or you go to a church that holds to a confessional statement, they would recite the Apostles' Creed. They most likely would use that term, he descended into hell. That is not part of the original um, um, understanding of what was in there. That was added a couple centuries later, okay? Um, no questions about that are allowed, okay? Just to be clear. I have some ideas, but I don't want to formulate them at this point. Um... The third point, all right, we're doing all right. The third point we have is, okay, so these first two, obviously very important that the canon was established, right? We needed to know what is, what, um, what books have authority. Second, the creeds. It's a summary of good Christian doctrine, and that's important, right? We have a, should have a good understanding of what that is. Third is the beginning of church organization. We might get off the rails a little bit here, okay? So, um, we have an idea, understanding biblical leadership, um, that the local church is to be governed by elders, and there's also deacons as well listed as leaders in the local church. That's what we have. Um, any term in the New Testament that talks about bishops, that's elders, presbyters, overseers, shepherds, those type, type um, terms are all used synonymously for elder, okay? Um, but at this point in the church, in the early ages, like a century after the apostles, the church is already adding to the church hierarchy. So you start thinking about, okay, so we think about the Catholic church, right? You've got the Pope, right? And you've got archbishops of bigger regions, right? Then you've got bishops over 
certain areas, and then you've got um, that are underneath the archbishops, and then you have the various priests and other aspects. I'm not an expert in uh, Roman Catholic um, government, but you understand there's a hierarchy that exists there. Um, so this is a little. This is where the church kind of says, "Hey, we're going to start doing something a little bit different than what the scriptures dictate." Um, in the second centuries, the leaders saw fit to establish bishops over certain regions in order, in their view, to protect the church from heresy and to promote an orderly church. Uh, this type of government is called an episcopi- ah, if I could say it, episcopacy. Um, and that it starts occurring in the second century. Um, one author who has um, episcopate leaning says, one should note that there is no indication that either in Rome or in Corinth that there was a single presiding bishop in the first century, rather a board of elders. Okay, so initial churches established by the apostles, they appoint elders, and they lead the churches, and that's how they're done initially. No bishops then that oversee those various elder boards in that area. But by the second century, um, these elders... Um, are now given bishops over them. There's several reasons why. But initially, Ignatius in the second century mentions that there was a third layer of leadership in their churches. So you had the deacons, the elders, and a bishop in Antioch. Um, Irenaeus espoused the idea that these bishops are um, in their roles because of apostolic succession. The apostles passed down to the leaders of each church who would be the next one. And then that person would appoint to the next bishop. So it's kind of odd. You know, we talk about the you know, Roman Catholic Catholics believe that the Pope is directly related to the Apostle Peter. Uh, it's a Petrine doctrine that Peter has passed down the papacy to the current Pope. There's a line of succession there. Um, where did these bishops come from? They most likely came from the elder boards of the local congregations. Um, and at this time, though, we begin to see the rise of what is referred to as the monarchical bishops. Monarchical, like monarch, monarchy, ruling over a monarch, one monarch ruling over the groups of churches in a given area. So one bishop. Um, and I think the, the, there could be various reasons why this happened. Partly, you've got a group of people. One person might be rises to the, um, maybe is more authoritative in their opinions and their leadership style. And they just kind of take control. Um, I think the church would argue at the time it was more efficient um, to um, have one person make a decision versus a board. I don't know any of you guys have been involved in boards before. Uh, when you have five to eight different people making decisions or having to have a consensus of that, that's difficult. So there's a, an aspect of efficiency for one person presiding over it. That doesn't make something biblical. Um, and the, the view was that this bishop would be the one that would hold the keys to orthodoxy, to stand for truth. That's, that was what their belief was. That's why it happened. Um, these, these bishops began to get more and more power from prominent areas. So we kind of eventually get to the point where there's kind of an Eastern-influenced church and a Western-influenced church. Um, I think I did that right. Yeah, so your Western church is mainly centralized its power in one place, and that's Rome. Um, the Eastern church has many kind of um, different um, areas that have power. Jerusalem, Caesarea, Antioch, and Alexandria. But the fifth becomes the most powerful is Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul for you guys. So you've got the East Church 
bishop gaining a lot of power in Constantinople, eventually, we're talking, now I'm way outside my 313 date range, um, and then you've got the Roman church obviously having the most power in the West, and eventually tensions mount and the church splits in 1054 um, AD, and then we have not just one worldwide Catholic big C church, we have two churches, we have the Roman Catholic church, and we have the Eastern Orthodox church. And that's when it splits in 1054. Um, and part of that is because this initial view of giving these bishops power and their influence over their churches. Um, so that's, of the three things we've talked about today, this is the one that's kind of starting to lead the church down a difficult path and a path that um, um, in its hierarchy and its leadership um, would be impacted forever based on the decisions made one century after they were passed down the apostles' teaching and after the establishment of elders um, in each of the local churches that the apostles established. It's kind of odd. You would think that would have held true for, you know, two centuries, three centuries, something, but it didn't. Um, so I think that's one of the, of the three things we talked about, the negative aspect of it, okay? So that's the church's response to the heresies of the day um, and still trying to struggle with what we're going to talk about next week. I have a couple ideas, and I haven't completely formulated what I want to speak about. But thank you for your attention, and um, let's pray. We're supposed to have announcements. I did not get a bulletin, so read your bulletin. How about that for an announcement? All right, let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we um, praise you. Lord, we praise you for um, um, the fidelity of your church, and Lord, we know that's um, because of your grace. Lord, we, th we thank you that um, the doctrines of um, the Trinity and the doctrines of who Christ is have been protected through the ages. Um, Lord, thank you that that is a work that you've done through your spirit to preserve your church. Lord, as we leave this place today, I pray that our hearts would be engaged to worship you today. Lord, I pray you would bless Keith as he brings your word to us and pray that you would um, work in us the way that you would have us change because of hearing your word preached. We love you and we praise you for this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.